everyone, Tim Wright back with you, along with Dr. Michael Gurian for the Wonder of Parenting podcast, the brain science approach to parenting. And uh, today we're starting a two-part topic on resilience, and uh, it's going to be a good one. Uh, before we do that, just want to say a special thanks once again to our guest last week, Dr. Greg Jantz. Uh, as we mentioned er, last week, and of course every week, uh, it's the Center of Place of Hope that is our sponsor, and uh, they do such important work up there in the Seattle area. I want to encourage you to check them out. You go to wonderofparenting.com, wonderofparenting.com, and there's a link to them. Uh, on wonderofparenting.com, you will also find that there are some resources available for you, and there is a place where you can submit questions, and that's one of the places where we pick up our questions. The second place is on our Facebook page. If you go to Facebook and do a search of Wonder of Parenting, Ask to join. We'll put you in as soon as I get the notification. And over a thousand parents are on that page and sharing their insights and their struggles. It's a great place to connect with people. Every once in a while, I'll pick up a question from there. Uh, Michael, how are things in Spokane? Yeah, pretty good. Kind of had a little snow this morning, but it's going to warm up. Uh, Oh, my goodness. We're moving into, into and through spring. So just so people have context, we're recording this on April 9th. So when they hear uh, it's snowing there uh, and this thing plays in, in uh, May, uh, we, we don't want to freak people out. So, <laughs> Well, every uh, once in a while, we do get snow in May here, yeah. if you can believe it. <laughs> so when Michael and I first uh, started working together 15 years ago, uh, at that time, Michael made a comment that he was done writing books. And I think that was five or six books ago uh, <laughs> had since. And um, I, I can I can think of at least five books that I know you've written since that time. You said you weren't writing any new books. I think you're working on a new one now. And <laughs> uh, there, there was some indication in uh, these amazing extended blog posts that you've been writing on resilience. And it's such an important topic. I thought we'd pick it up today and next week. And um, today we're going to talk about the nature of resilience. Next week, we'll talk about the nurture of resilience. So this is kind of background stuff. This is a bit more on what's going on in the world, why resilience is really important right now for our kids. So, Michael, let's start with this. Define resilience for us. Uh, Resilience is grit. It's uh, personal strength. Uh, The ability to, I mean, technically, it's the ability to withstand disturbance to withstand attack um, and, uh, and w- with strength and grit. So I think that's probably the easiest way to define it. In practical terms, it means that a child um, is going to be able, kind of no matter what the world throws at that child as a, as a child, young adult and adult, and especially most importantly as an adult, is going to be able to handle it. And um, that, that at least that's the goal. So why has this topic for you in relationship to our kids become so important? What's going on these days that Dr. Michael Green is thinking of writing a book on resilience? Well, I think partly it's because I'm asked so much about it, you know, parents and teachers. And and we just over the last 10 years or so, especially mm. um, I'm being asked about it and people are seeing patterns They're They're looking at they're looking at. Uh, like the kids in their school, like teachers would be, would be looking at the kids in their school and, and they talk about how everything's getting taken personally, you know, and there just doesn't seem, or they'll use, you know, the popular language of a lot of these kids don't seem to have grit or they're taking things personally and they don't seem to have strength. 
uh, they don't seem to be able to, you know, not motivated. They're not able to get up and go or be purposeful or, um, uh, you know, and you, I mean, you hear things like, and they're just, you know, things just like they're not handing their homework. They're not doing their schoolwork. Okay. Why not? Well, they just don't, they don't see, they seem to be focused on something else, but they're not really focused on doing these things that are important, um, with grit. And, and then if they get fail a little, or they, someone says they failed or, you know, then they're, um, it's really hard for them. You know, they, they don't pick themselves back up very well. And when they're critiqued, they, they, they seem to think they shouldn't be critiqued, you know? And, and so all of those sorts of things that's coming from, you know, the teachers and then the parents themselves are, are, bringing it up quite a bit, you know, the, like the parents that I feature in those articles who have written me or written to our, as you know, written to our podcast and asked questions about it, um, wondering about their own kids and how, uh, if kids win all the time, you know, if, if everyone's winning all the time and all of that, well, then are they, are they really resilient? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think people are worried, uh, that their kids may not be growing up to be resilient. And then finally, I'd say workplaces. I feature in those blogs uh, people who have come up to me at conferences or, or you know, at corporate trainings and uh, to talk about it and say, we don't think these 30, 35-year-olds, you know, that we're working with are very resilient because anything seems to knock them out, you know, and so they're seeing it in adults. And so then that makes me look back at the last one or two generations and um, try to study it you know, including Mm -hmm. this generation now to try to study, because I really think parents and teachers and coworkers, I mean, I think everyone's really wise. Uh, They're good citizen scientists. So if they're seeing a lack of resilience, you know, that's what's made me want to study it. And as I study it, I'm understanding that, wow, yeah, we really have a resilience problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will post, I will post the links to the various articles as we move through these next couple of weeks on our Facebook page. So we have reference, uh, parents can read those. Uh, I know a couple of years ago, and this is still the case, but a couple of years ago, this was heightened when we were hearing about college students having emotional uh, setbacks just by being confronted with an idea with which they disagreed. And so on college campuses, if they would bring in, say it's a a more liberal college campus and they bring in a conservative speaker, uh, people were having emotional meltdowns when hearing conservative ideas. And then if it was a conservative campus and they brought a liberal speaker in, the conservative students were, were having emotional trauma, so to speak, not to use that word lightly, when they were hearing opinions they didn't necessarily agree with. And it began to raise in the public sphere What's going on? Why are kids not as resilient as they need to be? Mm-hmm. So I know that you've been doing some thinking about this. What are some of the factors that have, do you think have led to this seeming lack of resilience in our kids? Um, before I answer that, I just remembered something that I forgot to say when we, when we were starting out, which is that, but I'm going to use a nice segue to it, to the Gurian Institute website. So these articles are on the Gurian Institute website. And right. actually, the one, the one that specifically looks at college campuses, which is the fourth, that will be out, and people can get it on the Green Institute website um, by the time this airs. So that fourth one that looks just you're, you know perfect that you brought that up, the college <laughs> campuses. Um, uh, but I, and I just want to know what I forgot to say is GurianInstitute.com. Go there, look at our summer institute. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and click it. Anyone who wants to click it, you'll see it right away. I'm going to be talking a lot about resilience there. We have 22 different workshops, and I really encourage everyone to look at that and see if they can sign up. And you can do it virtually uh, or in person in Phoenix. Tim will also be speaking there. Um, okay, I'm glad I got that in before I forget. So on that website are these articles. Tim's going to blast them out. And This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. And um, that one about college campuses is really important because that's a lot of what happens in the world in terms of child development starts on college campuses, uh, right? Academics starts a lot of things. And so mm -hmm. if something's going on in academe, um, gradually the media are going to pick up on it and gradually it's going to get into the parenting and education sphere. And of course, we'll get into government. I call that the big three, right? Uh, academics, government, and the media. And, um, and what's gotten in there is this concept that kids, I call it, I call it the, the erasure of emotion choice making. In other words, the concept that uh, young people don't have any more to make choices about uh, what they feel when they feel uncomfortable, we have to stop them from feeling uncomfortable. So we have to remove on a college campus any one or any idea or whatever it is that will make a particular student or 10 students or 20 or 50, whatever it is, feel uncomfortable. And you said that before about not taking the word trauma lightly. And I'm glad you said that because discomfort is not trauma, right? right? What's happened is that, that the feeling of discomfort has been elevated uh, on on many college campuses, not all, I'm sure, but many, it's been elevated to trauma. So then, of course, mm -hmm. the university is being told as an institution, it must save these kids from trauma. And the university wants does not want kids to be traumatized, right? So as we as we uh, took discomfort, which is really a feeling that you should make choices about, it's mm -hmm. not trauma which overwhelms you. And, and you really can't make choices. You have to go into fight or flight mode, right? And you can't make choices. You have to pull away. Maybe an hour later, maybe five years later, you make choices about that. But trauma stops you uh, in the moment from making um, any choices except fight or flight. But discomfort does not do that. Discomfort uh, is, is there to trigger us to make choices. So to trigger an 18-year-old to listen to the speaker that he or she does not like and to say, huh, well, you know, I, I liked that, but I didn't like that. I agree with that, but I don't agree with that, right? That's mm -hmm. that's what's supposed to happen when you have discomfort. 
And what the college campuses have to some extent tried to do is to elevate discomfort into trauma and then remove it. And the problem with that is, of course, it's what we call resilience resistance, where whole institutions, they can be family, schools, uh, um, the academy, they become resistant to resilience, resilience resistant. They're not creating an environment where people have to develop resilience. And so the people don't. So the 18-year-olds, the 19-year-olds, the 20-year-olds don't develop resilience. And it, and that's a resilient, resistant institution. And a lot of academe uh, has become resilient, resistant. And I think the crux of it, you hit on it, discomfort got elevated to trauma when it should mm -hmm. not have been elevated because the child is not harmed by hearing an opinion different than the child's opinion. There's no harm, right? But it's gotten elevated as if they're being harmed. And that's creating a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of the resilience development issues uh, in our society because what happens in academe spreads out and other people start doing it. Yeah. It, it's so interesting to me because you would you would think the whole purpose of a learning institution is to create discomfort because it's in the discomfort, exactly. it's in the questioning that creativity opens up your imagination, you wrestle with new concepts, you you grow as an individual. It's in discomfort that we grow and expand. So it's just so fascinating to me that we have really wanted to protect children from being uncomfortable with new ideas or new thoughts. And of course, in some ways, we're not going to go on this tangent, but in some ways we see it played out now in culture where political parties just cannot have any kind of conversation with each other because we're so locked into these positions and I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to become uncomfortable with what you have to say. I'm just not going to pay attention to you or I'm going to shout you down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we won't go into the politics side, but you're absolutely right that this whole thing's spreading through the culture and it's certainly spread through politics. And some people would say, well, we think that what's happening in academe actually started in politics and then mm -hmm. spread to academe with political correctness. That could be, um, you know, probably a chicken and egg. But I, to me, what happens in academe spreads out. And and um, that may be because I was an academic, you know, I taught for 11 mm -hmm. years, university level. And so I kind of, you know, study that. Uh, but chicken or egg, that is what has happened. And so, yeah. of course, words like political correctness uh, come to mind or woke come to mind. Um, but you were right to say, wait, this can happen conservative or liberal. I mean, you know, we tend to yeah, think right. woke as liberal, but conservatives, everyone can get uncomfortable and then say, oh, well, you traumatize me. You harm me. And uh, that's epitomized on college campuses by the safe rooms. Um, and I, yes. yeah, and I'm, uh, what I find, what I think has happened is that, and we have to get the word oppression in here. When we look at college campuses and we look at how the field of sociology uh, has such, has had such a profound impact in the last 50 years. Um, so since the seventies, when it really took hold, when it became a dominant part of, of college, uh, campus development and a dominant field and discipline. Um, so sociology, right, takes small sample sizes and then extrapolates from small sample sizes. And it's there's a lot of opinion in it because you're not studying brain scans. You know, there, you don't have hard science. What you do is you look at people like 50 people or 100 people and usually um, uh, initially and quite a bit, sociologists look at their college students and so they study their college students and then they extrapolate. And one of the things that happened as sociology was um, growing uh, was that feminism was growing. 
and the two mixed in the 60s and 70s, and they mixed with the civil rights movement. And the mix was initially incredibly important. I mean, part of why we have a much more egalitarian world, you know, we have much more equality for women, we have much more equality for minority populations, always work to do. But part of why we have that, and we have such an understanding of the need for social justice, is that that field of sociology said, okay, here's the key concept, oppression. So what's really going on is that there are minority groups and women and individuals who are oppressed. And if we can identify the oppression groups, um, and then we can identify the people who are harmed by the oppression groups, that is going to become the most important part of our academic focus, because that is what is going on in the world. And it, and it was, you know, it was definitely going on for certain people, right? I mean, women who did mm-hmm. not have equality, black people who did not have equality, um, uh, some still do not, obviously. So it was, it's an important frame. But that frame has taken over so that now kids who are 18, 19, you know, they're, they're in college, they're not oppressed. Um, uh, you know, they're actually very privileged kids. They're, they're on scholarship or their parents paid for them or they worked hard and got it. But whatever it is, they're, they're quite privileged and they are not sitting in a classroom or listening to a lecture oppressed. But the model is, OK, you just felt uncomfortable. Um, you, you are going to blame someone and what you're going to do is blame whoever has oppressed you. And that'll be an oppression group. And, uh, I call this oppression sociology. Uh, and so once you've identified the group that oppressed you, you know, that is the whole conversation. Mm. And here is the young person who is not oppressed, um, but who is utilizing the frame, which the frame is what this person was been taught, is utilizing the frame and saying, you know, that made me uncomfortable. Uh, I feel traumatized, harmed. I blame that person who just spoke about that topic. That That's oppressive to me. And that's a loop that I think is really creating a lot of resilience resistance because, um, you know, it's a false frame for that person. Uh uh, it's a false frame, and it just stops the person from making emotion choices. It just allows the person to say, I'm uncomfortable, I'm oppressed, I've been harmed, I've been traumatized. Um, get rid of that other. Uh, you know, as you said, just isolate that other because that that's mm-hmm. that person's bad, that oppression is bad. i'm I'm hurting from that oppression. And let's focus on that. And what I would rather is the person, the child acknowledged the feeling of discomfort and then made choices. Mm-hmm. Because it's from making those choices and and the choice of saying, well, it's all that oppressor. That is not a choice. You know, the choice is, what do I do now? Okay, I felt uncomfortable. What do I do now? Uh, I'm going to study that. Okay, where's that going to end up for me? Uh, you know, uh, what are the action steps I'm going to take? That's That's more of a resilience response than I blame you. You're the oppressor. Put me in a safe room. Yeah, I, I think of my life and the things that I believe now, the things that I value now are different than some of the things that I believed and valued before. But to get to where I am, I had to have people make me uncomfortable and challenge my thinking. And there were times when I disagreed and still disagree, but there are other times I thought, you know what, that's a point I haven't considered before. And that's where growth happens is in the discomfort. 
Um, so we're, we're talking about the nature here and, and we've, so we've talked about academia and, uh, how they can, uh, sort of aid this, uh, non-resilience or, or lack of resilience. Let's talk about, uh, from, from a parenting perspective or even a teacher perspective, too much intervention in the lives of our children. Yeah, I'm going to look at that from a few angles. One angle is the nature of resilience itself. I think it's so important for people to study their children. Um, uh, so I'm going to talk to parents right now to study your kids, do like a 30 day study of your kids and try to figure out where each child is on the resilience spectrum from a genetic standpoint. So I'm going to, this is, this can be a big one because maybe some people have not, have not thought about resilience as having a gene base, right. As being part of gene expression, but it is right. So there are a lot of kids who have um, high resilience on the spectrum and that's natural to them that came in on OPRMI genes or 5-HTT chromosomes. There's a number of these and I have them in the, in the blogs and I have this in saving our sons and minds of girls as well. Um, where, so the parent is not going to be able to study those genes, but the parent is going to be able to study each child and okay, this one, this one's really, really highly sensitive child by nature. Okay. So this child is not going to be as high on the resilience spectrum, but that other one, you know, that other one is just taking risks all the time, just, um, (laughs) getting in all sorts of stuff. Uh, it doesn't matter is not phased. Uh, okay, clearly that one has higher resilience. And then, of course, everyone's going to be somewhere on that spectrum. So that's the first thing I ask people to do because so so especially for your kids who are, you know, middle to high on the resilience spectrum, you're going to need to intervene much less than right. you might be. Right. Uh, so that's a whole population right there, which is going to make up many or most of our kids who for whom we don't have to intervene as much because it's okay for them. They're, they're, they're resilient, you know, and they're going to, um, uh, they're going to take some knocks, but they're going to come back up. And our job is always, of course, to provide for them, protect them. And we should always intervene if they're in danger. But, but with those kids, we may go, okay, we don't have to focus much as much on intervention there. And, but with the other, like the highly sensitive child that we have, we might go, oh, okay, that's the one I'm going to need to intervene more to model to help that child to, to model resilience responses for that child and to help the other sibling who's picking on that child to say, you know, it, it, don't be doing that. Or if you pick on this sibling, you got to teach the sibling how to fight back, you know, right. because we need to develop more resilience with this one. And, and that that's <clears throat> the nature of resilience. Just know there's a gene base. Um, and, and, uh, and then the overarching thing about intervention is that kids are more resilient than we are giving them credit for. And when we intervene constantly, the helicopter parenting, the lawnmower parenting, you know, when we do that, we create more resilience deficiency in them because they themselves are not having to make choices and act, right? Right. Which is how you keep building resilience is the kid keeps making choices and keeps acting um, uh, in response to the discomfort and then the choices, uh, emotion choices that are made that then drive action. So. when we intervene, we cut off that process. We take care of the problem, what, whatever the problem is. Uh, we take care of it. The child doesn't have to. Uh, we're creating a more resilient, deficient child. So that's my objection to constant intervention. Yeah. So then let's talk about our good friend screens. 
And oh, yeah. uh, we talk about this all the time. How is it that screens lower resistance or or make it difficult for kids to become resilient? Yeah. Okay. So uh, no, a number of ways. Uh, one is, you know, I'll, I'll focus on dopamine first. So when kids are texting or they're playing video games or they're on social media and going back and forth on social media or they're on TikTok, I mean, we have just so much research now on the dopamine and TikTok. Um, what's happening is they are are creating um, internal responses with reward, the dopamine, which is a reward chemical, right. and and it's instant gratification, uh, and and um, it speeds things up, and they get these responses, you know, uh, and and but then when they have to go back to real life, right, which is not on screens, they have to go back to real life, they have to go to school, they have, et cetera. What we find is okay, they're looking for instant gratification when they don't get it, you know, or when things aren't going fast um, and they need to have patience, they don't have patience. And, you know, part of being resilient is you're going to have patience. You're going to plod through something resiliently, you know, got to plod through it. Well, they don't have that. Um, And then when they don't get the instant gratification, the the quick dopamine hits, um, uh, then they, you know, they isolate from the real world and they go even further into screens because that's where they got the dopamine hits. And that then when they come back to the world, you know, every time they loop and they cycle back to the world, they're less resilient. And, you know, do two or three years of that as a kid and you get to be 13, 14, uh, 15. Adolescence is a time when you really need resilience. Um, mm-hmm. You know, adolescence is hard on kids and uh, but they don't have it. And uh, more depression, more anxiety, uh, less resilience, uh, more more suicide, of course. Um, and uh, more withdrawal, uh, more social isolation. And part of that is because early on, their development of resilience um, was retarded or uh, it's underdeveloped because they spent so much time on screens in the rhythm, in the dopamine rhythm of screens. So we've we've kind of started macro. We went a bit micro. I want to go macro as we wrap up sort of this look at the nature of resilience. And you talk about fear constancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been a lot of stuff. Uh, COVID, uh, a war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, insurrection in the United States of America, all of these things that we as adults are dealing with, our kids are living in that environment. So what is fear constancy and 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 what does that do to our kids? Yeah, I talk a lot about this in the first of the of the essays. Uh, so fear constancy is a good thing to talk about uh, post-COVID because we can look back um, on the two years in which we scared, uh, we, we ourselves were scared. So we were modeling yep. fear because we ourselves were scared. And then we um, made our kids scared. And I'm not saying an individual parent listening to that. I'm saying that the culture did that, right? I mean, the yep. CDC did that. Politics did that. The media especially did that. And then we we even though our children really didn't need to fear COVID, uh, we made sure they did. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm talking statistically, right? As people probably yeah. know, um, very few children have died of COVID. And obviously the one child who has died, it's tragic. So please don't hear me saying it's not. But in terms of statistics and data, um, kids did not have much to fear from COVID any more than they had from the flu or getting in a car wreck, all things you could fear. 
But we really pushed the fear on them. And of course, we masked them for two years and they lost sorts of emotional, social, emotional difficulties with that. So they lived in fear constancy. And that is a way to harm resilience development. And it's specifically because of the social isolation. So when you're in fear constancy, you tend to isolate. And that is really the problem. When you isolate, then you're not getting what's called co-regulation. So you're not um, getting all of the um, behavioral, social, emotional um, uh, events and relationships that children need to develop, to develop good mental health, to develop good physical health, actually, to develop um, resilience and all of these things. We need the relationships. But those relationships were masked or for a year, year and a half, the kids didn't go to school. They were isolated and they lived in fear constancy. And now the schools um, are, and the parents, everyone's feeling it because they're seeing that the kids are a year to two and a half years behind in their behavioral development, Mm -hmm. in their conduct, in their, um, of course, mental health, as everyone has heard, around 40, we think around 40%, this came out of the CDC, around 40% of our American children now under 18 are struggling with some form of mental difficulty maybe not clinical depression or anxiety, but some form. So, uh, and I, I believe that hopefully the next pandemic, we will, we will say, no, wait a minute. Um, you know, I mean, unless that one is killing kids, uh, right. which COVID was not, um, we are not going to put our kids in this fear constancy um, this time, because the last time what we realized is it crushes resilience, crushes mental health it crushes social health so next week in our next podcast we're going to talk about the nurture of resilience so we'll get pretty practical there about what what we can do in terms of uh, helping build resilience in our kids but it was really important for us to spend time today looking at some of the things that are contributing um globally so to speak and um you know and even uh, you know partly in our homes whether we're aware of it or not and um, so next week we'll do that. And again, I will post links to these various blogs that um, blog posts that Michael's written. They're extended ones because he wants to go deep with you on these issues, and uh, and backs it up with some really good science. So I think yeah, they're like really chapters helpful. of a book. They're long. Yeah. Yes. But I think because, they're a good read because you're you're writing a book, which you said you weren't writing books anymore. Right. Which so, I was yeah, never going to yeah, do again. Yeah. I lack resilience in <laughs> in sticking with my. <laughs> Concept. Well, we're all glad. We're all glad because we're all the better for it. So, uh, Michael, thank you. We're co- we'll be back with you again next week, and um, we will talk about the nurture of resilience. And uh, Michael, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, everyone. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.